Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, hosted by Nigel Williams and Winston Wright, in partnership with the St. Louis chapter of the National Association of Health Service Executives. Nigel and Winston are two young black healthcare professionals who formerly completed administrative fellowships at one of the nation's leading academic medical centers. Desiring to connect with and highlight leaders of color advancing the health and well-being of their communities, tune in each month to hear Nigel and Winston interview a diverse mix of inspiring individuals hustling nonstop to make healthcare better for all. everyone. Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Mwiza Uche, Associate Professor of Neurology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Uche, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Glad to be here. We're so excited to have you. You know, we like to start off just kind of having you share your, your life story with everyone. Could you take us through the journey of Dr. Uche? Yeah. So I was born in a small country in uh, southeastern Africa called Malawi. Most people, uh, its claim to fame had been that that's where Madonna went to get her kids for a while. So she was adopting Malawian children for a while. But uh, it's a cool little country known as the warm heart of Africa. Really just, uh, uh, it is a former British colony. So English is the language of business. So I was born there and family really dedicated to education. My grandfather ran a school in our, in our village. Uh, that's where my, my uh, mom's generation was educated. And then they all, it was really her education, her, her generation was incredibly well educated. And so instilled in the rest of us and the next generation that, that, you know, that, that college really wasn't an option, you know, that that's part of what we did. My mom is a college professor, just retired a couple of years ago. She's uh, living that life now, but, uh, but I was uh, kind of a sickly kid in, in Malawi. Um, I, I had asthma, uh, as well as eye problems. And so it was, was uh, with lots of allergies. And so it was frequently at the doctor's office. So I got exposed to, to medicine early. Um, and because of that exposure, I think as early as I can remember, people would ask, you know, you ask a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I would always say I wanted to be a doctor. You know, I not didn't really know what it all meant, but that's that's what I knew I wanted. And so, um, my family moved to the United States when my my mom came and got uh, got a master's degree um, in mathematics and then a PhD, uh, Indiana University and uh, University of Buffalo, New York. And so we moved to Rochester, New York, when I was eight years old, which was a, a an interesting transition. Now, luckily, we moved in July. My sister and I just. Uh, celebrated our 35th anniversary as being in the United States uh, this this past or 4th of July. Um, and so we have, and so we moved when I was uh, eight years old um, and um, had that transition of learning English, being, um, trying to figure out what, what that looks like for a kid as you're, you're, you're learning English as your primary language and still kind of having this desire to do well in school so that you have these goals. Um, and then those health issues didn't go away coming to coming to the United States. And Rochester, New York is one of the worst mm. places for allergies in the country. So I moved in the summer and my allergies and asthma was just terrible. And so again, I was introduced to doctors and my eyesight was getting worse around the same time. And I was diagnosed with an eye condition called keratoconus, which is you know, a, a pretty rare condition where corneas are, are, are coned instead of curved. And so when light refracts, person can't see because it refracts incorrectly uh, to the point that, that I needed cornea transplants. And so as you can see, as a kid, I'm like accessing healthcare in ways that most kids don't. Uh, you know, I had several ER visits because of the asthma and then, you know, allergy shots, all of these things. And, and each of these times I'm interacting with physicians that are just imprinting on me really good patient, patient physician interactions that led me to think, boy, this is, this is something I could do. I remember my pediatrician, Dr. Glowinski, I still remember her name. She was amazing and kind of navigating these issues, these issues with us. My, my ophthalmologist and eye surgeons, all of them really had just, just tremendously good interactions that, that really underscored that desire for me. 
I loved science. My my family is uh, interesting. My dad's a sociologist, so very much into uh, social theory. Talked a lot about uh, influence of African culture on American culture and influence on of Western culture on Africa. And so those things are going on in my house. But at the same time, my mom's a mathematician, and so I'm really like engaged in in kind of this math and science, which is which is where where I wanted to be. Um, uh, and then, you know, getting to, to middle school, high school, that goal is still very much, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I got nothing else on my head, got to college and, and really, um, it's where I started to, to run up against what it meant to be wanting this career and to be African or African-American in our country that, the pathways weren't as direct as I thought they would be. I think in many ways, I was much more blessed than other people who, who go along this path because of who my parents were, the privileges that they had. I, I was able to access resources that they may not, other people may not have been able to access. I got into a, uh, a, a kind of a, a science pre- uh, pre-college program between my senior year of college and my freshman year, sorry, senior year of high school and freshman year of, uh, of college that, uh, again, was the first time in my life in the United States when the majority of the people I was interacting with were Black people. I, I had uh, grown up in Rochester, New York in suburbs and had gone to suburban to rural schools and had really interacted in spaces that were very few, very few uh, Black people. I got to this program that was created for Black students. And these were incredibly smart Black kids that were coming from way different places than I had come from. And, I, and so that I, I began, as I interacted with them, to realize that, boy, I had privileges that they did not have in growing up in the space that I grew up in. Even though while I was growing up there, I thought, man, I'm, I'm underprivileged in so many ways. But that maybe gets into a further story that we'll get into. Um, but getting, I went to University of Pittsburgh. I love University of Pittsburgh. Kids and I just, uh, and, and my wife just took a trip back to the East Coast and we went through Pittsburgh, showed them around all of our old haunts. And University of Pittsburgh was a great place for me from a science standpoint of being able to engage with with different sciences, and I discovered neuroscience there. You know, I'd, that term, I'd, I'd not, you know, obviously that term had been invented long ago, but undergraduate programs in neuroscience had not yet been a thing. And University of Pittsburgh was one of the first places that had an undergraduate major in neuroscience. And, you know, as I did my, I started off as a bio major and just could not find my niche in bio that I felt like, you know, I wanted to do. And I took my first neuroscience course and I said, this is home. You know, I, I loved th th that concept of the brain thinking about itself, thinking about how it works and, and all of those things. And so I, I invested in that, got to do some research and that allowed me to come here to Washington university for medical school. And I came to Wash U for medical school and, and, you know, and, and part of this journey that hopefully we'll get into later is really a journey about mentorship. You know, and I think in many places, in many, in all of these turns, you know, if I wrote the book of my life, you could write it as, you know, each chapter is a mentor that, that kind of walks you along that path. And my journey at Washington University is certainly that, you know, so Will Ross, who many, many of us will know here at Washington University, you know, is the guy who reached out as I was a senior in college at University of Pittsburgh and said, hey, we want you to come here, you know, and I came and visited and loved it. And then while I was here, you know, floundered a little bit in my first year and a half as I met students that were much better at doing the college and the, and, and the book thing than I was. You know, you, you feel like at, at each level, you're, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. And then you're hitting up against people that are better or just as good. And I got here and it was like, holy cow, this is a different level. These are, you know, all of the kids that aced the MCAT to the kids that were, you know, national merit scholars and all of these things and road scholars. And you're like, holy cow. 
And so I felt out of my depth in that first year. And it was really support from friends and, and others that, that kind of helped in, in making it through that first year. And I still was kind of floundering with figuring out what am I going to do in this doctor thing? All I knew is that I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't know what that actually meant until I got here and began to see what people did with this doctor thing. And then I met my mentor, who he continues to be my mentor now, Joel Perlmutter, who came and gave us a lecture on movement disorders. And he brought a patient who had uh, Parkinson's disease and had a deep brain stimulator implanted for their Parkinson's disease. And they came in with an off and they were shaking and looked terrible. And then they turned it on. And back in those days, it was a magnet. So it was almost like magic because all they did was wave a magnet over his chest and the symptoms went away. And I just went, wow, what is this? How does it work? How can I get into it? And so I had a conversation with him. And, you know, the, this concept of, of mentorship that somebody can meet you where you are, give you time, and listen to, to kind of the, the things that, that, uh, that you are bringing, but then impart to you what they're doing and how you can fit into it. And that's what happened in that relationship. And so I got into his lab and that's how I really got into neuroscience and neurology and into what I do now. So that was, oh boy, long-winded and lots of stuff, but that's the, the concept of how I got to, to where I am now. No, that's just amazing story. Um, amazing story. I mean, I think it's, you know, Nigel and I often interview unicorns on this, on the show and you were definitely one of those people. Uh, so I have, I have a few questions, but you know, the first is what was the transition like from healthcare system to healthcare system, right? Because I would assume Malawi is a developing nation, you know, um, and so was it was it different? Did you experience, you know, a different level of care, just different kinds of care from Malawi to the U.S.? Yeah, I think the transition was my family is, is by no means poor in Malawi. But even not being a poor family in Malawi, there were things I couldn't access. You know, just the typical care for my asthma that everybody took for granted when I got here. You know, I mean, I had trouble keeping up with the other kids as a, as a young kid in Malawi because of my asthma. And I didn't have an inhaler when I was, when I was in Malawi. You know, to, to getting here in, you know, 1986 in, in the United States, you know, for a pediatrician to be able to say, you have asthma, you need this, you have allergies, you need allergy shots. That was, that was not something I could ac access, you know? And I think, you know, this is probably the first time anybody's asked me that question. And so also first time I've had a chance to vote, to, to kind of have that introspective view of what did it look like to access healthcare as an eight-year-old, seven-year-old in these two different systems. You know, it, it was very different that the things I could, I had a chance to access were, were incredibly different. You know, I tell people that if I had grown up in Malawi, I think I would probably be blind at this point. And so as I think about my goals, the things that, that, I, that I wanted to achieve, it would have been incredibly harder for me to achieve those things because of the health issues I had as a child. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, that is... That's, yeah, really interesting um, perspective. And this is just, it, it's kind of a, a follow-up question um, involving transition, but, you know, uh, you kind of, you know, mentioned your dad's work as a sociologist, which I find really interesting. And, you know, we don't often get the perspective of someone moving from the United States to America, I believe at such a young age. So what was it like adopting or adapting to the American culture, the Black American culture, being one of the only Black people in, you know, in your space? Because there's a lot of identities that you kind yeah. of had to walk through, you know, throughout your experience. Yeah. So, you know, I think that is a, boy, a, a loaded question that may take us the rest of the time to go through these, these, uh, the identities that, uh, that we all have to kind of navigate and that, that I've had to navigate. So coming to the United States as a Malawian, which was the identity that I thought I had, when I got to the United States, I was an African. You know, meaning that 
we didn't have a Malawian community. Yeah, so Africans in Rochester made a community. So we had friends from Eritrea, which is nowhere close to Malawi, you know? We had friends from Kenya, friends from uh, friends from other portions, Zimbabwe and South Africa, you know, that banded together. And, and so this concept of Malawian became not wider in that it was African. And the United States, and so my world, didn't see me as Malawian. You know, the initial thought was African-American, and then wait, you don't speak quite right, and so you're African. You know, and you try to say I'm Malawian, where's that? You know, is, is you know, and there's a desire to fit in, especially as an eight-year-old kid. And we, again, we lived in suburban communities where the majority of people were white, you know, I, I'm trying to remember if in elementary school or middle school, there was another black kid in my class. And I can't remember another black kid in my class. I didn't have my first black teacher until I was in seventh grade. And that was because our teacher had a baby. And so they had to replace our English teacher. You know, and, and so from interacting with black people's standpoint, it just didn't happen. Interestingly, I think my sister and I grew up. So my sister is, is uh, four years older than me, four and a half years older than me. So she will tell a completely different story because when she came, she was 12, 13, she was 13. And so going into high school at, you know, the high school that, that we went to was a a, a bit more, uh, had more African-Americans in it. And so she developed close African-American friends than I did in elementary school and middle school because my elementary school and middle school did not. And so we've, we've grown, we grew differently. And so when, and when I went to high school, we moved to an even more rural portion of, of, uh, uh, of Western New York to Brockport, New York, who, you know, who knows where Brockport, New York is. There's a college there. And so that's where my mom was teaching. And the black kids, the majority of the black kids at school with me were other Africans that were the kids of college professors and then bust kids from the city who were themselves experiencing a different culture as they came to this very suburban rural school and to that interaction just just didn't work of an African kid who doesn't know what it's like to be African-American now interacting with urban African-American kids who don't know what it's like to be rural kids, you know? And so that that interaction I think was was very difficult for me, you know, as it came out more when I got to University of Pittsburgh and it was, oh, by the way, let's lump you all together because you're all black. So you're gonna have similar experiences in, in, in this space and you're gonna be able to get along, but it's not a monolith y'all, you know? This is, people are coming from different places and there were clashes as I interacted with kids who grew up with what's it, what it's like to be black in the United States, what it's like to be African-American in the United States with a history of it that I didn't have with a knowledge of all of this background that I didn't have. What I had was a history of what it's like to grow up in an African community that's been impacted by racism, but potentially in a different way than the African-American community. And so we definitely butted heads because having that second part of my childhood grow up in predominantly white spaces, I had a different idea of what a black person was, you know? And it's taken me time to understand that was a really racist idea of what a black person was, but that was my, that's what I had. And, and so I, I struggled with that interaction with quote unquote black people in, as I got to college, you know, and, and to be thought of as a black person 
in an African community. So to be thought of as African-American in an African community is often not received well because, you know, in Africa, we already have, we are taught these conceptions of what a black person in the United States is, you know? And to many immigrants, as we think about the hierarchy of what you can be, to be black in the United States is the worst thing you can be. You know, that's the, you know, those are the people that are most denigrated and most downtrodden. And so to be that is often thought of in immigrant communities. While the culture is cool, to be considered that yourself is not necessarily considered to be cool. Um, and so I think I struggled with that and continue to struggle with that as, you know, as, uh, you know, as a person who has a very African name. But because I grew up here, I don't necessarily have the accent, you know, that that identifies me right away as not of this country. And so, so I think I, you know, we go to we go to a, a church where lots of immigrant families have come to to uh, to worship with us. And I see the same thing in this kind of what I call what the one and a half generation. So kids that were born home, but then were brought here by their parents who are still very much of whatever African country they grew up in. But those kids are growing up in either a white or black American culture. And so they have to straddle these identities and figure out who they are within these identities. And that's that's not the easiest thing for eight, nine-year-olds as we're trying to figure out who we are. Wow. A lot, a lot there. Uh, a lot there that I, I had never had to think about, you know, as a, as a Black person who grew up here in the United States. Um, I guess it's refreshing to hear that we're thought of as cool, but unrefreshing to hear that it's kind of the lowest thing on the totem pole from a societal capital perspective from our brothers and sisters across the across the ocean. Um, as you transitioned into a career in medicine, you know, I, I want to kind of expand both on just how that journey was for you, because I know we have a lot of listeners who, you know, maybe like Winston and I are interested in the administration side of things. But, you know, we also have a lot of people who are interested in pursuing that career to be to become a Dr. Ushay. Um, how walk us through that journey for you from getting to medical school to being a practicing physician. And then also kind of talk to us a little bit about your experience doing that as an African. Yeah. So the, the journey is often sold as kind of this straight line that everybody's going to go through. You know, you get to medical school, you do your four years, you know, so first two years, and this is actually changing for the better and the, the curriculum is changing. So what I did was, you know, I got to medical school, did two years of preclinical work, which is mostly the same thing we did in college. So book work with some patient interaction and then two years of primarily patient interaction when, when you're doing your clerkships, followed by a residency, and then, a, and then either you go out and you start working or you do a fellowship and then you go out and start working. And that remains the path for most people. Washington University is one of these places of privilege where you can modify your path because of the opportunities that we have here. And so I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity to come here because it's, it's not a privilege for everybody to be able to come here. And I, I realize now that it's not always your own merit that gets you in these spaces. And so what I did was I came thinking, we're going to be in St. Louis for four years, you know, and then we're getting out of here. So I came, did two years of preclinical work. And as I told you, I had this interaction with Joel Perlmutter, love deep brain stimulation. And I really wanted to know how it worked because he didn't tell us how it worked in class. And so I came up to him and I said, how does it work? He said, we don't know. We know it works. We put it in people's brains, but we don't know how it works. And we study it in the lab. If you're interested, come and talk to me. And so I went and talked to him, spent about an hour in his office. And so as I talk about mentorship, these are the things that, you know, it is, it is time. It is investing that, that capital of time that as I get older, I understand that, that boy, time indeed is money, especially in medicine and academic medicine, how 
people think about our worth is how much time we're spending on particular things. And for him to take that time and spend an hour with a, an undergraduate medical student to, uh, to be able to say, this is what I do. This is the research we have. These are the places you could plug into if you wanted to do this was an amazing thing for him to do. And so he captured me with the research that, that he was doing and I wanted to be involved. I had done some research in college. It had been uh, more rodent work and I really did not want to go to that back to that. I didn't want to do bench work. And he was talking about doing patient-oriented oriented translational research using deep brain simulators to figure out how the brain worked. And I thought, this what could be cooler than this? We're doing imaging, we're doing electrophysiology, we're doing you know amazing and cool stuff. And so I, I jumped on and decided to do a master's with him. And you know, as in the course of doing the master's, I was like, this work is really cool. I think we could, I could do more. And so I spent an extra two years in the lab where I thought it was gonna be one year. I spent an extra two years in the lab, which was a great experience for me. This was, again, opportunities that don't exist everywhere, but here at WashU, this was, you know, I, ha I had funding to be able to do this. You know, the university gave, gave me funds to be able to do this, to take classes. Um, I got to write papers. I got to go to meetings, got to present the work that I was doing and really learned a lot and, and solidified that I wanted to do neurology during, during my, my research three years. And then I went back to to the uh, to do my third and fourth year and did my third and fourth year as typical, and then um, uh, matched here for my neurology residency. Interviewed at a bunch of places, and uh, if you spend seven years somewhere, it gets hard to leave that place, you know. And that's essentially what happened to us. Plus, you know, in many ways, it was a good place for for my wife, both my wife and I. My wife had a job that she liked here in the city. And we were making relationships that we were like, okay, we're, you know, we're getting, we're 28 and 29 now. We, we're not kids anymore. We can just pick up and take off whenever we feel like we, we've got investments. Uh, and so we chose to stay, which was again, you know, just a wonderful opportunity for me in residency. And so residency in neurology is a, is four years. So you do a year that is an internal medicine uh, internship and then three years of neurology. Um, that was a, a great, a great time of, of learning and developing patient care techniques. And then I was chosen to be a chief resident. Um, I think the second African-American chief resident after one of my mentors, Allison Willis, uh, who is, uh, who is an amazing physician. She is, uh, I, I will always lift her up as somebody who, who hopefully I, she, she's a leader now, but but she's somebody that I think will be head of a department or, or even a university at some point. She's at Penn right now. Um, if I could bring her back, I'd bring her back any day, but she's doing amazing things at Penn. Um, and so I was a chief resident um, in the department uh, and, then, uh, and then was selected for a fellowship here. Uh, the fellowship here at Washington University for movement disorders is two years, and I wanted to do deep brain stimulation. Ever since I did that research, I knew that's what I wanted to do clinically, and so did a research fellowship that was focused on deep brain stimulation, where again, we, we were studying the, the, uh, how deep brain stimulation works, published some papers, as well as learned how to do it. And in the way that serendipity works, the, the year that I was finishing my, my fellowship, my mentor in deep brain stimulation, Samir Tabal, was ready to move on. He he He's from Lebanon, and and he and his family were looking to get back to Lebanon, and so the thought, you know, came up to to Joel Perlmutter, the the lead of our section. Okay, what are you going to do with leading this deep brain stimulation program? We're going to bring in somebody. What are we going to do? And he came to me and said, "I want you to lead it." And so that was like, holy cow, you know, I'm a finishing my fellowship and essentially ready to lead a deep brain stimulation program, which was just, you know, just essentially the job I wanted. So I've had the job I wanted since, since I started this thing uh, now eight years ago. Uh, and so that's, that's where I am now and kind of have grown into each of these roles. Uh, my most recent role is, is now that the, the uh, diversity liaison or diversity lead for the Department of Neurology, and that wasn't our role I took easily, and we potentially can spend more time on that as well. Um, but but those are those are kind of how I got to where I am now.
from a medicine journey. So sorry to ask a redundant question, Doc, but um, so in all of your roles, so like right now, are you more, do you do more clinical care and practice or more research or more kind of operative administration work? Like what, 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 what really is the day in the life, I suppose? So the majority of my work is clinical. And so I think on the books, I'm 75% clinical. And then I spend some time doing some research and then I've got, I, I was able to negotiate 10% of my time for the, uh, for the diversity work. Okay. And um, so in neurology, uh, you know, when we were thinking about like certain patient populations in St. Louis, right, particularly St. Louis City, um, what are some of the disparities, inequities, you know, that you tend to see? Because uh, I think, you know, for me, I, I was shocked, you know, to kind of understand that brain trauma, of course, gunshot wounds, that could be linked. To, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think, you know, of things like that. So are there certain things that you see um, in your practice? Yeah, so... My primary focus is movement disorders. And so I see patients who have Parkinson's disease, patients who have tremor, patients who have dystonia and those kinds of illnesses. However, we also see patients with, with dementia and patients, uh, patients with other movement problems. And I think if you ask any doctor who is honest, do you see disparities in the place where you're taking care of patients? The answer is always yes. And so the city itself, you would think, boy, if you're, we don't have a city hospital, you know? And so it, we, we take care, uh, we should be taking care of anybody who needs care in the city. However, if I see one black patient a week, that's like a boon for me in, in the number of people that are actually able to access this specialty level care wow. at Washington University in movement disorders. Wow. Initially, the thought had been that these disorders are not common in Africans or African-Americans, you know? And so that had been the message to us as we were, as we were training, you know, because we asked, where are all the, where are all the minorities? You know? And the answer was, well, these seem like to be diseases of white people, primarily Northern European diseases. And then people actually did the work and asked the question, how much does Alzheimer's disease affect communities of color? Okay. And it was the same, if not more prevalent in communities of color. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's just Alzheimer's. That's a very common disease. So it must be that that's just Alzheimer's. Well, let's, let's, let's look at Parkinson's disease. That can't, that must not be as common because we don't see those patients. Well, if you do more careful study, and so this is where Allison Willis has actually added to, to the data a bunch, she and her colleagues, you find that Parkinson's disease is incredibly common in people of color. It's just that nobody looks, okay? And so it took a long time for people to look, for people to recognize those symptoms, and for those people to be able to access the same levels of care. So. I spent lots of time regaling you with how I got to deep brain stimulation. But a place of shame for me as a deep brain stimulation practitioner is that this is a level of care that is not available as much to people that look like me. Regardless of insurance status, those people are not making it to my clinic to be evaluated for whether or not they're a candidate for deep brain stimulation. And the question of the why in our particular, now this is not just in St. Louis, this is worldwide, but we can ask the question of, okay, let's talk about St. Louis. Why aren't those patients making it to us in St. Louis? And so we're asking ourselves those questions and we don't know all the answers, but some of the answers are definitely that the places that do deep brain stimulation tend to be places that have a history of misbehavior when it comes to <clears throat> treating underrepresented peoples in this country. And so if we are, if the tertiary care institutions have not made amends 
for the wrongs they've done, then they continue to be a place where people think that think of as a place of harm for their community. And so it's harder if you're a person, especially if you're older, and I treat older patients, I treat 60, 70, 80 year old people. If you're 60, you remember that in the 1970s, black people at Barnes Hospital were treated in the basement. You know, you remember that experiments were done on black people at Barnes and Jewish Hospital that should not have been done. You know, and so for me to come to you as that person and say to you, I want to put electrodes in your brain to help you move better or not shake as much. If I haven't built a place of trust or a place of saying that we are actually here for you, not to you, not to do to you, I think it's difficult then for me to actually have, have see those patients. And so I just actually came out of a meeting that we are attempting to ask this question of what does it look like for us to, to be engaged in the community? And we're asking ourselves different questions now than we did five years ago, which was, hey, let's just go give the people what we think they need. We're starting to ask ourselves the question, who are the people that can tell us what they need? And I think that's a better question. And we'll get more nuanced answers that may lead us to better ideas of why people haven't come to us to get the therapies that, that are important and necessary for the treatment of diseases like Parkinson's disease. That's powerful stuff. Um, and on the kind of on the flip side of that, you know, you kind of mentioned starting off as this big time leader kind of entering into your career. Um, and as someone else who has kind of gone through that experience at a very young age, going into, into a leadership role um, as a person of color, could you talk to us a little bit about that? What was it like stepping into the role of DBS leader at an age of, sounds like you were maybe like you were 28 at the time, 28, uh, 29. So that was old. I was 30 something. Cause I'd gone through residency. So I was 31. Yeah. 31 still yeah. pretty young mm -hmm. to be, to be taking on a pretty significant clinical leadership role. Talk to us about that first year. What was it like? What were some of the mistakes and what were some of the things you ran up against as a, as a young black leader of color in this space? Yeah. You know, there's times when you don't know what you don't know. And so as I think about that time, I didn't realize that I was just hanging on, you know, essentially just trying not to mess up, just trying to keep things going the way they had been going. I had the advantage of support from people who were leading. So again, I bring up Joel Perlmutter's name and he gave me that lead and didn't just leave me out there. He met with me every week to make sure that, that I was actually, you know, able to, to offload the things that were happening. I had two surgeons. So Josh Dowling and Keith Rich, who trusted me in the operating room. And so, because they had seen me for two years, and again, partly because of the mentorship of Samir Tabal, I was able to work with them and get that, get the cachet that I needed for them to trust me that, that I was doing the right things. However, you know, and, and I say this all the time, I continue to say this, the thing that, and the place that I, I made the most errors and maybe bumped up against the issue of what does it look like for a young black person to lead in a department at Washington University was the, the human resources bit. So having people who report to me trust that I had the be their best interest at heart and also trust that I knew what I was doing. I was naive and want to continue to be naive in some ways. And so in many ways, I chalked it up to 
this is my first time doing this. I'm the young guy here. I'm, you know, why would they trust me having been here longer and been managed by people who were much more senior and now having to be managed by me? And so I, I continue in, in, in many ways to, to want to believe that because I've gotten to know many of these people. And, you know, while there's no such thing as I don't have a racist bone in my body, you know, I think, you know, there is a desire to trust somebody and it takes time and maybe it takes a little bit more time when you look like the three of us for, for people to trust that you actually know what you're doing. And in many ways, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, from a management piece, just because you have the two letters MD behind your name or five letters MD, PhD, does not mean you know how to manage people because we do not get trained on managing people in medical school or in graduate school for medicine. And so if somebody reached out to me for a piece of advice as they were getting their first job and their first chance at leadership, I would say, take a course in people management, read a book on people management, you know, because these are not the things we have learned. Just because we're smart in this area does not mean we're smart in that area. And so I think that's the place that I, I've struggled the most. In many ways, the, the, the thought is you will just kind of uh, mirror the actions of your mentors. But as I've grown, I've realized that, boy, there's some things my mentors don't know how to do in people management because we haven't been taught that and we've thought that we're just going to figure it out as we go. But that, that I think, is the place where people get injured. And so I'm, I'm being more intentional in learning how to manage people and understanding that living in a racialized society impacts every relationship we have, including those management relationships. Wow. You know, Dr. Shea, it's funny um, just to have someone as humble as yourself, just, you know, kind of speak so easily, um, you know, to all of this stuff. And I'm just curious, you know, because you're still young, right? Um, like, you know what? Yeah, uh, no, you know, you're still young. You still got so much life ahead of you. Um, is there any kind of, you know, end goal for you at this point? Is there any, are you still dreaming? Like, what is keeping you going? Like, what do you want to see or what do you want to do? Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I think about that 24, 25 year old me who discovered neurology as what they wanted to do. If you would have asked that person, what do you want to do with your life? And said, oh, by the way, in, in 18 years, this is what you're going to be doing. He would have said, thank you. That's the job I wanted. You know, I want to be, I wanted to be at an academic institution doing something like deep brain stimulation and advancing the, the science of how it works and um, its applications in, for patients with neurologic and psychological disease. Um, and these other things that I do were not at all on my radar. You know, having, you know, going back to growing up with a dad who was a sociologist who studied um, African and African-American interactions in the world, that was not at all what I wanted to do. You know, not at all what I wanted to do. You know, I remember him having, my goodness, students over our house until late, late at night to talk about issues of race in, in Africa, in the world, in and, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, people that, that were refugees from their own countries and what that looked like, you know, while they were cool conversations, I was like, man, that is not what I want to do, you know? And so when I was asked to take this role as the diversity liaison, my, my initial answer was going to be a no, because I felt like I already had a full-time job and this seemed like a full-time job on its own, you know, but and, and I thought a great deal about that, that issue of the black tax and that this is, again, an activity that maybe will not be, actually lead me to actually get, 
get advancement at the institution, but will you know look good for the for the uh, department and the institution. And so I I was gonna say no and chose to say yes because of the potential good that that it could do. And it took so again going back to my mentor Joel Parmutter it. I had to talk him into it because he saw the potential burden that it could be on me in taking this role. And so as I think about what my goals are for me, for the department, for the institution, because I've achieved from a, from a medicine standpoint, what I wanted, you know, I never wanted to run a lab on my own. I never wanted, I don't want to be the chair of a department. I really don't. I've seen what chairs of departments do and I don't want to do that. Um, this role has come to a spot where I'm thinking, okay, this is a place where I could potentially make a difference in changing the way that neurology looks. And I don't know that I need to be the one doing it, but I think what I can do is get our department to a spot where this role matters to a degree that's in, that it is invested in, in a, in a tremendous way, you know? And so I, I'm pushing our department to actually think about what this role means, what it means to fund it for long enough that somebody can actually do something that they feel secure in it and that others who see our department see that we actually care. Uh, and so that's that's kind of you know my next one two five years that's that's my goal, and then if if I had a legacy, it would be recruiting a person who actually trained to do this, so that we stop grabbing people just because they look like me to do this, but instead we recruit people who have trained to do this. You know that's what I would think of as my legacy here at Washington University that I could always see that person or the next person that comes up to take that position or the next person and say, yeah, that's that's what I did. I, I didn't perpetuate this thing of thinking just because this person is black, this person's a woman, this person is LGBTQ+, they're gonna be able to do this role. But instead we have to think of it like we do every other role at our institution. This person is trained for this. This person is capable for this. This person um, is funded to do this. Those are those are the, the things that 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 I I would think of as as my next goal. Beyond that, I don't know. You know, I you know they they tell you to have you know five year plans and fifteen year plans and twenty year plans. You know, when you kind of reach what you wanted to do with your life, it gets harder and. You know, there also is a part of me that's like, why do I need to do anything else if this is what I wanted to do? And I think there's a part of that for all of us that we got to get to a point where it's okay to have succeeded. You know, it's okay to have succeeded. You're yeah. not lazy or you're not complacent. You're not any of these things. If you have succeeded and you love what you're doing, you know, there's not a need to push to goals that you might not actually like, you know, if you love what you're doing, and I love what I'm doing. I love my patients. I love the thinking about the diseases that we treat. I'm looking forward to therapies that are disease modifying, potentially cures in these places and these neurodegenerative diseases that we treat. And I'm looking forward to retiring from this, you know, in who knows how many years and doing something else in the community or, or traveling with my wife and those kinds of things. Um, so, so I think that's, that's maybe what I would say to that question is, you know, yeah, in a long winded fashion as I have been most of the time today. <laughs> no, it's been great. And I just, I want to take a second to call out a piece of wisdom that I, I think you shared in there. Um, you know, I think especially as, as young, hungry people, um, I can't speak for Winston, but I know for myself, I have a tendency to run towards any opportunity that's, that's presented. Um, and I love that you and your mentor took the time to take a step back and assess. Um, and I think that that's such a good lesson for, for the young leaders out there is that it's not always a good thing to just agree immediately. You know, maybe something else is going to come around, or maybe you need to think about the opportunity, yeah. or maybe you need to focus on something else. Um, so I love that. And I love that Dr. Perlmutter was similarly looking out for you in that situation in the same way. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So Nigel, I think, you know, we've, uh, we, we talked, we've had a, a lot of good content. This has been, been really excellent. Um, so I, I don't know if we're ready for the, for the rapid fire or, um, you know, to wrap it up, Dr. Shea, you've been, you've been brilliant. Um, really, I think I, I just, I have to say this, um, always, you know, it's such, it's, it's such a privilege to be able to be in this space. Um, you know, Nigel and I really started this again as a platform to amplify the voices that we know at our institutions like WashU. I think on the surface, a lot of times it can be a really isolating experience for people of color. Um, but to be able to come here and just be able to hear from someone as brilliant as you um, and, and to be able to do this in the context of what we're talking about has been really powerful. So just thank you for being a guest on the show uh, today. Yeah, this, this has been fun. You guys have made me think about things that I, I don't always think about in myself that, you know, it, it is, uh, it's good to share. And, and definitely, uh, you know, I, um, looking forward to, to hearing the, the other podcasts of other people who've, ha who've had the same introspection and, and uh, talked about their life experiences. You know, I think it, it is a bit that, that we've lost, you know, this kind of storytelling that, you know, community storytelling that allows us to gain from each other's experience that this medium is allowing to come back. I love podcasts. I'm, I'm forever listening to podcasts because it just, it, it allows a concentrated amount of time for somebody to be able to talk about an issue themselves, you know, the world in a way that, that, that the sound bites that, that we get in the news and, and, and other media just don't get to. So I'm glad to have done this. Yeah, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Thanks for sharing all the all that you have. Um, you know, quick personal shout out I wanted to give you. You know, I just wanted to. I used to work in the Department of Neurology for for people who may not know that, um, and it was so exciting to me as a 25 year old, hot off the block. I think I'm the top of the line manager to to walk in and have my first meeting with a with an with a black physician at the university that wasn't the famous Dr. Ross um, for, <laughs> for those that for those that don't know Dr. Ross is kind of the man here at, here at Washington University Absolutely. everybody knows him but you know aside from that I, I had not run into any black physicians. Um, so it was fantastic when I, when I had my first meeting with you although I'm sure I delivered some terrible billing news that you didn't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so our first meeting was actually on a bike. Do you remember that? You came past yeah, me. Yeah, it was like my second day. <laughs> oh, yep. man. And, yep, yep. Whole, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, but, you know, before we move on to the rapid fire, we want to make sure we give you a second. Where can people find you, look you up? Do you have any research or projects coming out that you want people to know about? Yeah, so... Um, I'm in uh, the Department of Neurology, Washington University. We've got a, a website that's terrible, but <laughs> it's a website anyway that, uh, that uh, details some of the work that I do in movement disorders. We've got a current research project that, that we're doing uh, to evaluate what de how deep brain stimulation changes the brain, changes brain networks using a cool new technology called focus ultras, uh, not sorry, called uh, diffuse optical tomography um, to evaluate brain networks in people who've got metal implanted in their head since I can't put them in, in uh, MRI machines uh, to, to do that work. Um, and then we have for people that if you know anybody with Parkinson disease, whether they're of color or not, but especially if they're of color, I want them to know that we are here for them, that, that we want them in our clinic. Our clinic is one of the hardest clinics to get into at Washington University, but if you send me those people, I will find places for you because we know that we have not done a good enough job taking care of you. And so that that that's a big deal. And so, you know, feel free to to, I think people can actually find my email address now online. So you can even feel free to email me. I may or may not answer depending on what you send me, but, but I'm happy to interact with people. If you are interested in neurology and you want to talk, I'm also happy to interact with people. Um, I don't mind if you guys put my email address on this podcast, it, it is perfectly fine. Um, I'm happy to interact with people, especially young people who are thinking about medicine and thinking about a, a career in neuroscience. 
we have a dearth of African-Americans coming into neuroscience and these diseases are not diseases of white people. And that's the thing that we need to make sure that the kids hear. When I came to WashU, I was gonna do cardiology or internal medicine or primary care because I thought those are the places that black people are needed. But black people are needed in every part of medicine. We get the same diseases that white people get. So stop hearing that there are diseases for white people and diseases for black people. We get the same diseases and sometimes they're worse in our populations as they are for Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So we need people that look like us in these spaces. Um, and then we are coming out with a website for our diversity efforts as well. And I'll shoot you guys that that link. That's gonna that, that website maybe in the next week or two is gonna come up for diversity efforts in neurology. Also links to diversity efforts in the in the rest of the the rest of the university. Uh, but those are the kind of the the two spaces where you can find me. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll get all those links in the description for, for people to have quick access to. And now, you know, we talked about a lot of heavy stuff today. You know, we explored our identities. We learned that, you know, Winston and I are cool, but low on the totem pole. Um, and now time to lighten it up a little bit with some quick rapid fire questions. We're going to go through three of these. Hit me with the first thing that comes to mind. We like to have a lighthearted way to close out the show. So you ready? Ready. All right. First one, describe yourself in three words. Three words, short, funny, sports. Sports. <laughs> uh, who would play you in a movie? Oh my goodness. So Dulé Hill is who I would love to play me in a movie. And then last question, who is your favorite superhero? Superman. Oh, kind of a cop out, but we'll let I you know. know with it. <laughs> so I can elaborate. So again, you know, this is maybe longer than you than you want. <laughs> so this comes back to that issue of of exposure as as kids of color. I didn't know who Black Panther was when I was a kid. I didn't know there were any black superheroes when I was a kid. And the first superhero movie I saw was Superman. Superman grabbed me because Superman isn't any of us. You know, Superman is an alien. And in many ways, that's what I felt like as a kid in this country is an alien. So I could identify with, so I actually love the story of Superman as a kid. And so I watched Smallville, my goodness, which makes me sound old and also may potentially not cool not but i loved i loved smallville because it was the story of an outsider you know somebody who can't always can't be their full self in in the environment that they're in and that's that's kind of the the superman that i that i like is that this is somebody who is an alien who isn't fully accepted for either of his two identities. And depending on the space that he's in, he's kind of, he has to switch, you know, you know who, who he has to be. So I think Superman is, is deeper than often we, we give that superhero credit for. What's my favorite superhero movie? Black Panther is my favorite superhero movie because that movie for again, an African immigrant to get a picture of Africa that it is not belly distended babies was just, a tremendous thing, you know, that, you know, it was a, a, a tremendous thing for Africans to actually feel like we were represented on a screen in a way that was, 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 that had dignity. And so I, I love Black Panther for that reason. Man, that was a rapid fire. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. Again, a man of much more wisdom than your age would indicate. Thanks. Thanks again for the time. We appreciate you so much. Winston, oh. any closing thoughts? No, this is, this is excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Shea. Oh, thank you guys. I, I am thankful that young guys like you are doing things like this. We need you in health administration. Yeah. You guys in your positions will set policy for what hospitals and institutions do. And if we don't have people that look like you in the room, those policies remain the way they are. You know, and no matter what I, I choose to do in my little tiny space, 
if institutional policies aren't changing, it gets really, it is really hard for, for the individual clinician to actually impact change. And so to have African-Americans coming through in this, in this healthcare track, this healthcare policy track is really important because you need to be in that room. That representation in the room is so tremendous. So I'm giving shout outs to you guys as well. Thank you, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate you coming on. You know, make sure you guys tune in for our, our next episode. Um, Dr. Ushay, have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. If you found any content valuable during your time with us, we certainly would appreciate you sharing this episode with your network. For more information on the National Association of Health Service Executives, you can visit the St. Louis Chapter website at www.nahsestl.com. And for the National Office, please visit www.nahse.org. And make sure to be on the lookout for new episodes of the Healthcare Hustle podcast.